From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Lisa C. returns to the show this week. Lisa C. is the author of the nonfiction history of her family called On Gold Mountain, and she has written mysteries and a bunch of glorious historical fiction, including China Dolls, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, The Island of Sea Women, and her latest book available right now, Lady Tan's Circle of Women. Lisa C. will be at Bookstop Santa Cruz on June 27th and at a bookstore at a bookstore near you probably very soon. Uh, and right now, she's here. Lisa C., welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Yeah, thank you for having me again. I, I love the book. It's a, a, a wonderful book, and there's lots of things that I want to ask you about it. And, and most of your books that I've read have been stories from you know, the last century or so, you know, at least, you know, somewhat modern times. But this one really transports us to the 15th century in China, which I knew absolutely nothing about. But nevertheless, it seems like it has political implications, you know, for 2023. Uh, you know, what can women do and how much control do they have over their bodies? Uh, did the Dobbs decision, were you thinking about things like that when you were writing? No, so I wasn't. Um, the Dobbs decision came down, I think, right as I was coming to the end of the first draft. But you're right, there are certain things in this book that as I was writing it, I didn't have a sense that they were going to be so pertinent in a way, you know. So first, um, you know, in that time period, 500 years ago in China, smallpox raged through the country every three years. China invented something called variolation, which was a very early form of vaccination. And it was just so weird to me because all of the discussion and arguments and, you know, hoopla that we were listening to over the last three years, both sides, they were having back then in China. More anti-vaxxers then. Yeah, plenty of anti-vaxxers. And of course, I mean, there there were reasons for that. Um, you know, variolation, what they would do was grind up um, the scabs from someone who had died of smallpox and then blow it through a tube into someone's nose. Or they would take the gooey, nasty stuff right straight from a sore and rub it, let's say, on a baby's nose. So obviously there were bad things that could happen. You know, people could get sick, they could be scarred, they could die. But if they survived the process, they they were basically vaccinated. But the you know the issues were: is it worth it? Is it safe? It, does it ruin a woman's beauty? I mean, all of these kinds of things. And then the other, as you pointed out, um, sort of the Dobbs decision and who has a say over women's bodies. So this book is about a a woman doctor in the Ming dynasty. All of her patients were women and girls. This is true. Um, All of her patients were women and girls. And so much of their health then and our health now has to do with female reproduction. And so um, she was treating women and, and, and again, girls for all kinds of um, issues related to that. But Again, what struck me is here we're, you know, when the Dobbs decision came down, it's not like that conversation has gone away, right? I mean, it's been with us for 50 years. It's been with us for 500 years. I came across a nun in the 1100s, who a Catholic nun, who wrote two books um, with 
like recipes for making herbal medicines for if you have cramps, if you want to get pregnant, if you want to end an unwanted pregnancy, how to get through childbirth. So these were questions that were happening then a thousand years ago, and I suspect all the way back in caveman days. And I suspect however many years it takes us to get to Mars, we'll be having the same conversation on Mars. We're, we're, being, we're going to be on Mars uh, next Tuesday. Okay, but are we going to be living there? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going. I'm staying home, like always. <laughs> um, so um, a, a lot of the characters in your book are, are some of the main character based on real people. You did, of course, you always do. Lots well, Tanyan Shun is based on the woman of the same name who did write this book uh, when she turned 50 in 1511. And uh, it is, a, it's remarkable if you think about how many books are still in print from before 1511. Wow. You know, Bible, the Iliad and the Odyssey, some Greek tragedies and comedies. Um, you could go around the world and the Mahabharata and China, the Book of Songs, the I Ching, but all of those written by men. And right. so it's really, you know, that she wrote this when she did, that it's still available, not only in Chinese, but also in English is just, a, to me, a really remarkable thing. Because it's still centuries before you see women like, you know, the Bronte sisters or um, Jane Austen or George Sand, you know, it's really until you get to about 100 years ago with Virginia Woolf that women start being published pretty regularly yeah and um what how was a book in the 15th century distributed how was there did they have a printing press how did it work they those were woodblock prints mm. so um it was all hand worked and and you know sewn together um actually that was a time of, of quite a bit of literacy but also Wealthy people like to build big libraries. And uh, it, at that time and later, actually, during the what's called the Ming Qing transition, so the end of the Ming dynasty, the beginning of the Qing dynasty 200 years later, they that also people were collecting um, writings by women, actually, at that time, and really trying to preserve them. So uh, there is this kind of history of saving this stuff. But the other thing was that this book, she intended it to be used by women. Um, so if so, in those days, a, a male doctor could not be in the same room with a woman or a girl. He would sit behind a curtain or a screen or even better yet out in the hallway. And the girl's father or the woman's husband would act as the go-between asking questions. But Tanyan Shen could actually be in the room with her patients, which, you know, made a huge difference. So in writing up her cases, she also wrote out the recipes for how to make the prescription so that theoretically any any woman at home could make those um, for her children, for herself. Well, the um... think of it like a cookbook. Actually, yeah, like a yeah. cookbook of medicine. Uh, uh, um, witches bruise? No, that would be wrong. <laughs> no, that would be wrong, but, <laughs> but maybe not that far. But there was some kind of a feeling like that when it's like grind up the rhino's horn and all these other things. Mm -hmm. um, the opening uh, chapter of 
chapters of Lady Ten's Circle of Women as is uh, frightening and uh, scary as any Stephen King uh, novel. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's, uh, it, it deals with this, this thing of, of foot binding. I mean, it's just horrifying. And I didn't know anything about foot binding. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know exactly what it was. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's horrifying, but I want to know, what you discovered about it and is it still going on and no no it was outlawed back in 19 in china in 1911 with the creation of the republic of china Mm -hmm. there were some places that it there were so remote that they didn't hear that it had been outlawed when i wrote snowflower and the secret fan so that takes place in a very remote remote county in Hunan province. And they didn't hear that Mao had taken over the country in 1949. They didn't hear that foot binding had been outlawed. They didn't hear either thing till 1952, just because they were, it was so remote. So it, it did linger for, even though it was outlawed, it lingered in some areas, partly because of the isolation, but partly because people didn't want to give up the practice. So, and and why why did they want it? What is it? Well, this was the one thing that a mother could do to possibly give her daughter a better chance at life. You know, if she could give her daughter a pair of perfectly bound feet, then maybe her daughter could marry into a better family, have a better life. What were the other options? You could go work in the fields. Um, people died very young back then. Um, you could be sold as what was known as a, um, my gosh, my mind just went a a little daughter-in-law. And we had, we had those in my own family, actually, little daughters-in-law. So, you know, you're, you're buying a little girl who's about seven years old. She's there to be kind of a little helper in the house, but eventually she's really there to become the plaything for the boys. And if she's very lucky, maybe one of them will marry her. Maybe one of them will take her as a concubine. But, you know, again, not not a really great option. So, you know, there just weren't a lot of opportunities and a lot of ways for women to be elevated. And so this, again, was the one thing that a mother could do to give her daughter a chance at a better life. And a lot of girls did die in the process of of foot binding from gangrene, from infections, but the the dangers never went away. Uh, Even as you grow older. And to take care of her feet, you know, it was a whole process of how you would unwrap your feet every four days, you sand down your toenails, um, you know, your foot is effectively rolled over kind of like a sock, if you think of it that way, and your your nails are going into your palm, your toenails are going into your palm, the what would be the, I guess, the arch of your foot. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you've ever had a toenail that's just too in the wrong spot when you're hiking, something like that, and it hurts so much, and it breaks through the skin, what they really you couldn't have is a nail breaking through the skin, because Everything was wrapped up so tight. It's very hot, very humid in China, and things got nasty in there pretty quickly. And so, you know, even women had to be very careful about how they cared for their feet. And Okay, so you've explained why they would do it, but why would a, a, a 
broken for foot. For many other reasons, of course. Yeah. Why, yeah. why would a broken was, foot was, enable a woman to be, um, uh, uh, enable her to rise in society because her feet were bound? Why? Why was that a thing? Well, so I'm going to put it to you this way. It, okay. So it was also an incredible economic status symbol for men. You know, a man could say, I am so wealthy that, look, my wife has bound feet, meaning she didn't have to work. Or I am so wealthy that not only does my wife have bound feet, but even our servants have bound feet. That was an extraordinarily wealthy man. And, you know, we we do, it's not comparable exactly, but um, we do have things today that where um, women are doing things to their bodies. You know, the number one age for breast enhancement in this country is 17. Isn't that incredible? Oh, so who's giving that as a gift? You know, it's it's probably the mother. Maybe they say, oh, we want her clothes to fit better. We want to give her more self-esteem. But if you really get down to the core of it, it's really to make that girl more marriageable. And I live in Los Angeles. So I can say that sometimes you can be walking on the street and you see some guy walking with his wife, you know, this woman with his big fake breasts. And, and it is, it's like a status symbol. Look what I can have, look what I can afford. And so there was that aspect. And then two more, of course, you know, men are men. And so there was a whole sexual component to bound feet. It was um, anything you think of they could do with those feet, they did. Um, I always, in my writing, stay away from that because it's just like too, like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) no way, I can't go there. Um, I'm shocked uh, to know that there's some place you wouldn't go. (laughs) But the other thing is that women like their bound feet. You know, in towns and villages, people would have, they would have like the equivalent of a beauty contest and women would sit behind a screen or a curtain and all you could see were just the three inches of the feet and the judges would walk up and down. And then finally they would say, here is the most beautiful woman in our village. And the curtain would come down and it might be a woman in her 70s or 80s because bound feet never changed. They stayed exactly as they were once they were made. They didn't gain weight. They didn't sag. They didn't get wrinkles. You know, so women like that. They, they had a and, and their feet, feet would be bound when they were seven years old, five years old? Starting at five. You typically, I mean, some parts of the country as young as three and then some areas where it was quite a bit older, like 11, 12, 13. Well, you know, they do say that the bigger a woman's breasts, the stupider the man she's with. But, I have not heard <laughs> that before, but I bet it's true. <laughs> but, um, is, is, is it also about mobility? That is, if you, uh, you know, cut a woman's feet off, she can't run away. She can't run away. But there's also that idea that she'll always need to use an, a man's arm to support her to take her so there's even that has sort of two sides to it right one is she can't run away but the other is that she will always lean on him now that foot binding is outlawed um is there like bootleg foot binding or do people just no. do other things to make their feet small or are they just hope no they i don't not that i know of anywhere in the world no uh-huh. interesting yeah i mean uh it's a it's a it's a major part of your story and a 
absolutely fascinating rabbit hole to get into if you start looking at pictures of this. Well, I, you know, I had written about foot binding in, in other books, but I did want to look at it this time again, more from a health perspective, because I was dealing with women's health. Yeah. And, as you know, since you've read the book, um, that there could be many reasons why a woman would not take care of her feet. You know, not just that she she could be lazy, she could have forgotten, or she could have some other reason of like, if I let this go, something bad's going to happen to me, and and that's okay. Depression, in other words, yeah, yeah. And um, you 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 write this book in the voice of one of your characters, and that's a decision that you had to make, I guess, about how you would narrate your story. And did, at what point did you make that decision when you were writing the book? At the very beginning, yeah. you know, all, all, so I've written now several historical novels and all of them have been in the first person. Yeah. I, I think it helps me really get, we're talking about foot binding, but like be in their shoes, <laughs> really be in their clothes, be in their shoes, be in that room with them, seeing what they're seeing. And with this book in particular, I felt it was really important because you know, it's one that several of my books seem to start in like 1935, 1937. Yeah. We have a pretty good sense of what that life was like then. You know, there was electricity, there were telephones, there were automobiles. I mean, you know, we, we could go on an ocean liner. I mean, there, there were a lot of, we knew how people communicated, all of that. But 500 years ago, but, you know, we don't really know that. Uh, uh, you know, maybe, and you could say Elizabethan England, well, we have a pretty good sense from reading or watching a lot of Shakespeare, but even that doesn't really necessarily tell you of the, what the day-to-day was like and how people live, you know, how they lived. Um, so I really, for this one, had to do a lot of extra research, really interesting research, things like, you know, could you send a letter in the Ming Dynasty? What, what Was there even a mail system? Um, what else? How long did it, if you were going to go on the Grand Canal from Wuxi, where she was from, up to Beijing, how long did it take in 1496? This isn't like looking up United no. Airlines schedule, you know, it, it's really hard to find. But I, I feel like once I'm looking for those details, it really helps me to be again in in a person. So that um, first of all, it makes all that stuff a little more natural, I think, and more organic to the story as opposed to okay, here's the history lesson coming. Right. Yeah. Well, and of course, you do that so well in all of your books, and that's what makes historical fiction so great and your historical fiction so marvelous it's you know a history book is fine but it's great to write to be right in there and 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 feel it and see all the people around you and uh, and that makes me think and I, I don't know if i can ask this question properly and maybe it's just a stupid question but when you're writing your your historical fictions mostly your stories are about women and there's always wonderful characters and they're all different and unique but i wonder if you were a filmmaker and you were making a series of films and you had an ensemble of actors that you used it does a similar thing happen in your head like oh i i understand this character because it's not it's it's the 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 
the character who was played by this character in this book is now this character in this book. Does something like that happen or nothing like that happens? No, not really. The the only character that is or person that is like that is that there is sort of a reappearing character um, who is very much like my grandmother. Ah. And so she's lived in different centuries in different places, doesn't look, didn't look like my grandmother at all, but there is an aspect of my grandmother's character that comes through. So in this book, that would be um, the grandmother in Island of Sea Women, uh, the mother-in-law in Tigre La Pumingrid Lane. Um, uh, I mean, I can just go in the mysteries, the neighborhood committee director, and then you can go all the way back to my first book, Old Mountain, where it's actually my grandmother. Yeah. And she's been gone you now for all, I, I, I'm going to guess about 30 years, but writing a character that has her characteristics is a way for me to be with her. You know, it's like a way for me to talk to her in, in a sense. That's a wonder. That's wonderful. That's but really not, wonderful. not, but not, but, but I think she's the only one where I really feel like it's based on a person, but, but that that character evolves sort of from book to book, but I don't think there's another one in there. Now you mentioned that you wrote mysteries. Uh, I don't know if you're still writing them. You occasionally write them. No, there was a period where you wrote them. Yeah. But, um, but there's certainly uh, an element of mystery in Lady Tan's circle of women. Um, So you called upon your mystery writing skills. I did. I got to do that. And, you know, what inspired me for that was, of course, I had her book, Miscellaneous Records of a Female Doctor. There's another book that I came across called The Washing Away of Wrongs. This is the first book of forensics written anywhere in the world. I think it's like 1247. And until very, very recently, it was still the main forensics text in China. And so that I, I just, first of all, I thought it was so interesting, the idea of sort of like the yin and yang of it. You know, on the one hand, you're, you're dealing with death and, you know, is this murder? Is it suicide? What was there some wrongdoing? How do you figure out what happened to a dead body? You know, did they drown by accident? Did somebody hold them under? Did, you know, all of the, you know, what poison was used, all of that kind of stuff, but it's very grim and it's, and it's about death and, and investigating death. And then on the other side, you had her book, which is really about life and healing and bringing life into the world. And so that I just felt like this was such a, a kind of interesting thing to play with. Plus the fact that her the men in her family, her father, her grandfather, her great uncle, her husband had all worked for the Board of Punishments, which, of course, was, was the, the government bureau in charge of investigating crime and, and metting out the, the punishments. So just you know, not only were there these two books, but she had this kind of dichotomy in her own life that she and her grandmother were healers. And on the other side, the, the men who were um, doing sort of the opposite of healing. Um, one of the other aspects of your story that I think uh, resonates with 2023 is a class and who the haves and have nots in, in the story and how the upper class uh, are completely oblivious in some ways to the, 
you know, they don't even realize that there's a whole other millions of people outside, you know, yeah, making bricks and, and things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I. So I was thinking about that from the very beginning when I first learned about her. And then, you know, within 24 hours, I'd gotten a copy of her book and just raced through it. You know, scholars believe that, you know, most of her, all of her, basically all of her patients are the women and girls who live in her husband's family compound. So these elite women and girls, plus the servants who take care of them. So there are some people who are, you know, the kitchen scullery and some concubines and things like that. But she does have these other cases, the, the brick and tile maker, the woman who holds a tiller on a ship. And this was a time, you know, when Confucian thought really ran society and Confucius had very strong feelings about what women could and couldn't do. So he had these sayings like, um, uh, an educated woman is a worthless woman, or a good woman should never take more than three steps outside her front door. And from all accounts, Tanyan Shen was sort of this fine, upstanding Confucian woman. She you know, went into an arranged marriage. She had four children. Um, she managed a household. She did all of those correct things. And yet she still kind of broke the mold, right? And somehow got out to meet those working women. So I was thinking about that from the beginning. And this, this kind of, it's a circle of women, right? But a kind of circle where you have servants and concubines and wives and widows and maiden aunts and ladies in waiting all the way up to the empress. And this is this kind of continuum. And that we do still have parallels to that today. Um, and there's a scene to me that is really, you know, just like, ugh, where, um, Han Yanchen has gone to live with her grandparents. She's still a little girl. And she has this servant, Poppy, who has been with her her whole life. You know, her parents fought her for her when she was born. It's expected that Poppy will be with her till the day she dies. And Poppy and another maid are talking about their own lives and where they came from and what, what their stories were. And Yenchen is, you know, a little kid just listening in bed. And she's like, I, I never even thought about where she came from, you know, where Poppy came from. And so you're right, this sort of taking for granted of, it's not even just taking for granted. It's like, these are almost less than pe people, right? Because they just are there to take care of you. And you don't really think about what their lives, you know, they didn't really think about what their lives were like. And yet, um, you know, if, if you think about them as all women, that they're all at some point going to get their period, they're all at some, you know, maybe they're going to get pregnant, maybe they aren't. If they get pregnant, it doesn't matter whether you're a servant or the empress, that baby's going to have to come out <laughs> somehow. It's going to have to come out, you know, menopause, that these are things that um, unite women across time and geography and it doesn't matter their economic or social status we're talking with lisa c her new book is called lady tan's circle of women and i love it and you will too um it, it could open up i mean I, I was kind of surprised when i was reading 
that you didn't have an idea for your new book and then this book came to you because you 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 learned about Lady Tan. And I always think, well, Lisa, see, she's got all these stories rattling around in her head. It's just a matter of time until she just gets them all out. But um, but that wasn't the case. So now you this opened the door for you to write this story. And now I can see you just staying here and giving us uh, a look at what happens outside the walls of the Garden of Earth. Mm-hmm. Could that happen? I'm not going to continue that story. I'm already, I'm doing the research for the next one. Uh uh, Yeah, it's, it's not in China. I mean, the the thing that was so different with this book was that I couldn't go to China to do research. Uh, All the libraries, all the archives that I ordinarily go to, all of them were closed really for the entire duration that I was writing. And so I had to come up with new ways to do research um, that were completely different for me. And I suspect that I will use them in the future as well. But it, you know, I, it, because like I said earlier, you know, that this took place 500 years ago meant that I had to already do just a whole level of research that I'd never done before. But to do that during the height of the pandemic, when we really couldn't go anywhere and everything was closed was Quite the challenge. I can imagine. I'm, now I can remember when we talked about the island of sea women that you went to Korea and you right. went to the spot and did all those things. Um, so you had to experience it in a different way this time. Yeah, yeah. Now um, I also want to ask a little bit about crime and the crime and punishment aspect of of your story. These these people who meted out punishments they weren't particularly um, just in their meeting out of punishments no and I, but i again i see sort of a parallel to today like with in california we have the three strikes law you know mm-hmm. is that really fair if your three strikes are drug misdemeanors no but and maybe i'm wrong now about you know that it's changed and it has to be more serious crime but all, we know that um uh, punishments in this country are not done in a level or fair way. Right. And, and so I, you know, that there was a, a parallel to that in, in the 1500s in China. Yeah. Well, how, how much do current events uh, play into your writing? I mean, do you think, Oh, you know, if I, I could go in this direction and people would really see uh, uh, a, a parallel or do you just allow it to happen or what? Well, I will say with all the stuff about women's health, I was I was not thinking about the larger picture, you know, the larger picture. I didn't know that that Dobbs decision was going to come down. So this this was just um, sort of personal to me, but also so tied to Tanya Chun's actual work. I mean, that was the heart of her work. But something like smallpox, when I saw that it was something that came through China every three years and all the issues that were around variolation, it was like, oh, yeah, I got to use that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I have to use that because I think people will see this. Ha- this isn't something that's happening right now to us for the first time. This is something that's, you know, these questions have been around a long time. And, and actually, can you learn from what they did. Can you, can you learn from the past? I wish I could say that we 
could and do. I, I think we tend not to, but I, there's always that hope that we can learn from the past or, you know, look at how um, something like vaccinate, you know, vaccination or variolation was looked at then and think about, well, after 500 years, should I have a different way of thinking about this? Yeah, but apparently we don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. We can learn from the past. We just don't. Right. <laughs> I mean, I wish we did better. <laughs> it doesn't seem that we do. It's uh, uh, amazing. So now there's also uh, an aspect in, uh, in all of your work about women and the connections between them. And especially in this one, Lady Ten's circle of women. Your mother was a novelist, a writer, Carolyn C. And you are a writer. Um, Lady Tan's grandmother was a doctor and she becomes a doctor. Is there uh, something there? Are, are you uh, are you aware of having writing handed down to you? Very much so. And, you know, also my mother's some very strange noise in my hotel room right now. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's making the lights go and everything. Maybe it was your mother. It is an odd sound, but it stopped. Um, but my mother's father was a writer as well. So oh. I, I feel very conscious of being a third generation writer. A lot of what I um, sort of my daily practice actually comes from my grandfather who passed it on to my mother who passed it on to me, you know, write a thousand words a day. I, when I was doing research for On Gold Mountain and I was looking through my mother's papers at UCLA, I found a letter that he had written to her when she was in college. And he said, mm. you know, you want to become a writer, you have to write a thousand words a day. And of course, this is something that she told to all of her students. She wrote about it in Making a Literary Life, you know, a book that was about how to become a writer. And I do that as well. Um, and I, I feel... Well, sometimes I joke that it's like I had a, a lifelong apprenticeship. It's a good thing they weren't plumbers, but why couldn't they have been brain surgeons? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so lucky that they were writers. And um, I definitely would not be here writing the kinds of things I do in the way I do, following the sort of daily practice I do, if it wasn't for my mother and her father. What kinds of things did your grandfather write? Well, he was an old Texas newspaper man, and then he moved out to California. He had a column uh, in the newspaper. He worked for the, I want to say the L.A. Herald Examiner back in the 30s and 40s, and then eventually retired sort of south and had a column in the Rancho Santa Fe News. Um, but when he was 69, and he always wanted to write the great American novel, but he never got around to it. He was quite the womanizer. Yeah. So when he was 69, his fifth wife had just had a baby and he needed money. And um, my mom at that time was a single mother. And one of the ways she supported us was by um, being an expert with uh, expert witness in pornography trials. And mm. he picked up one of the books she was having to defend. And he said, I could do better than that. And between the time, that time when he was 69, when his, you know, wife had just had a baby and he died, he wrote, I think it's something like 70 hardcore pornographic novels. 
Oh my gosh. So it took him a long time, you know, to find. Have you read them? You know what they say, write what you know. That's right. Yes. (laughs) It just took him a while to find his subject, I think. And have you read them? I, I, I had glanced at a few of them way back when, but you know, they're like a little steepy for me. They're probably hard to find now. Those kind of books yes, are hard to yes, come by. Yes, because he, and this was quite a while ago. Did he write under uh, pseudonyms of one kind or Many another? Many pseudonyms. Yeah. I don't think I can say them on the air, but they were <laughs> very clever. <laughs> well, because now I want to track them all down. I mean, one I could say probably is okay. And if it's not, you can just cut it out. Hardy Peters, you know, so the names like <laughs> Um, very, you know, clever, oh, yes. clever Peter. names. <laughs> That's amazing. And, uh, and he made a, he did a lucrative uh, business uh, writing those. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, great. It helped support his wife and brand new baby at the, you know, at the end of his life. And, and why was Carolyn C an expert witness in pornographic trials? Well, so what they were trying to show at that time was that, you know, a lot of the scenes, a lot of the language was stuff that had been around forever. She was a PhD in English. And so she would be the one who would get on the stand and say, oh, yes, this scene that they're talking about, you can go back to Shakespeare. And here's the exact scene in Shakespeare, just written in a slightly different form. Oh. Uh, and and maybe that language in Shakespeare, you, we don't understand. But if you looked it up, it's pretty hardcore. So she, she was the, the expert in that, in that way that could um, s- sort of place these books in some kind of historical, con- historical and literary, li- actually literary context. Now, your first book was on Gold Mountain. Was your grandfather still alive when that was published? I don't remember, but it's, that's a different side of the family. So um, on my, fa- my father's side is the Chinese side. Yes, but uh, what I was wondering is, did he know that you had become a published author? I don't think so. I think he'd already passed away by then. Mm-hmm. But he did get to see my mother become a published author, and he was so unbelievably proud of her. And was your mother a critic of your work or um, a booster? So my mom, we, so an interesting thing about my mom, so like I said, she was a single mother. She started writing seriously when I was 12. And uh, she, for whatever reason, she let me read everything she wrote. Um, and if at first it was like magazine assignments and she'd, but also her first novel. And she would say, just, you know, pay attention is the woman, you know, is somebody wearing a red sweater on page one, but now it's purple on page 12. Um, is there, you know, a word that sounds wrong? Is there something that's, you know, doesn't make sense. And so that when I said earlier, like a lifelong apprentice, that's what I mean that I really was learning from the time I was 12 to edit and to, you know, to look for things that were wrong, out of place or wrong or didn't make sense. The, Mm -hmm. the pace of a story. Um, And then uh, she read all my stuff too. And so when I wrote um, I, uh, Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, she was pretty sick by then and she was in the hospital. And I started, I read her that book. I mean, I read, I, we didn't get to the end, unfortunately, but there was one line in there that I was so proud of. And I could, you know, I was like getting closer to it. And I was like, I just wrote this really, you know, it's such a good line. And, and, and my mom was so good because she would 
you know, she was just not in a good, she was ill, you know, and in, on drugs and stuff, but she was still such an incredible editor. And so every once in a while, she'd say, stop, stop, stop. You know, and again, it would be something like, that car was blue, but now you have it as silver. I mean, you know, just these, like, I don't understand why this is happening. Anyway, I, I like, I'm just reading along and reading along. And I read this sentence that I was so proud of. And I get about two more sentences and she just left her, her hand. She said, you don't read that sentence. You're just showing off. <laughs> and I took it out. And now I don't even remember what it was, but it was something I was at the time. I was just so proud of. I thought, oh, this is like the most beautiful sentence I've ever written. <laughs> don't do that. It's just showing off. Just showing off. You don't need to uh, uh, do that. You just tell a wonderful story, right? Yeah. yeah. And you've done it again with Lady Tan's Circle of Women. Lisa C. And you're going to be at Bookshop Santa Cruz next week. It's the 27th. It's Tuesday, I believe. And I'm going to come over and see you. And I hope everybody listening will come over. And um, believe me, you will love Lady Tan's Circle of Women. It's a wonderful book. And uh, thank you so much for writing it. And as always, thank you so much for sitting with me on From the Bookshelf. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. It's really wonderful. You're listening to From the Bookshelf. I'm Gary Shapiro. John Malkin joins me now. He's a musician, journalist, radio host, historian of popular culture and politics, and the author of several books, including his latest, Punk Revolution, an oral history of punk rock politics and activism. John Malkin, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. John Malkin, you've been working on this book for something like 20 years? Yes, I have. In the initial years, I was hosting a radio program, which I still do. I've been doing that for 25 years. And all of these interviews were initially done for a radio broadcast. They, I started getting them published also in the local papers, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, the Good Times, before that, the weekly, and then in some national magazines like Punk Planet and Z Magazine and Adbusters. And I realized that I had such a great collection of interviews, actually with all kinds of people, but one group of people were punk rock musicians and people who had collaborated on punk rock projects or been inspired by the punk rock ethos. And I thought I have to put a book together. The interviews do span about 20 or 25 years, which is about half of the life of punk rock. So it tells kind of a huge story. And I tried to make it an international story as well. And I was viewing punk rock through a few different lenses, which I tend to do the lenses that are really important to me that I value a lot, that's social change, social justice, and spirituality, and creativity. And so the interviews, even looking at punk rock, are viewed through these lenses and, and through a lot of kind of unusual perspectives, I think, you know, looking at how well punk rock has done as far as social justice issues and where maybe it's fallen short sometimes and where the 
where the difficulties are for all of us, punk rock or not, in shaping the kind of world that we want to live in that has less or no war, for example, where we're not destroying the environment, where there is a future that we can look towards and believe in. I think punk rock was one of the first realms or the realm that said really clearly no future. It doesn't look like we have a future. And that that was a powerful statement to make that we're now living even more with the pandemic and climate change and ongoing wars that <clears throat> have not dissipated during my lifetime. It seemed to me at the time when punk rock emerged in the 1970s, with some exceptions, naturally, the, and those exceptions are the ones who are probably still making good music today. But the, the it seemed like the ethos of punk rock was a reaction to uh, stadium rock, to Led Zeppelin, to uh, extended guitar solos, and uh, and and uh, you know the kind of practiced musicianship that we saw in rock music, whereas punk rockers were reacting to that with less polish yeah i mean it gets it gets really interesting and complex when you dive into it and that's what i did in 250 interviews with people over the last 20 plus years i'd say roughly half of the punk world says yeah we were um we were creating something that was against what came before in a lot of ways, the hippie movement that didn't quite do what it set out to do. And definitely against this stadium rock, um, huge corporate rock and roll thing that had happened. And the other half of punk rock says, I loved that stuff. I, I loved ACDC. I loved disco. Even John Lydon, from the Sex Pistols and Public Image Limited, he told me, I liked disco. I And in his memoir, he writes about uh, liking Cool in the Gang and how he sort of became the poster person for this idea that punk rock was against disco. But a lot of punk folks took what they grew up with and they twisted it. And uh, for example, John King from Gang of Four, I love Gang of Four, and I have since I was 17 years old. He commonly would say Gang of Four was trying to make perverted disco. Their music is really rhythmic and danceable, and they were talking about changing systems. They were criticizing capitalism and militarism and patriarchy. They were very interested in the American scene and the history of America and the genocide of Native Americans. And one of their album covers even is explicitly about that. And John King, I mean, it, like you're saying, there is a large body of punk rock that's um, against what came before. And I think that's really healthy. Maybe... I remember posing this question to a lot of people in my interviews. You know, every generation 
seems to come up with their new language that they're hoping the adults don't understand and and moving towards creating a new world and challenging the world left behind by the generation before and there's a great wisdom and healthfulness in that and using not reinventing the wheel but starting with what you loved about what came before is really healthy too and john king in my book he told me he's referring to when jimi hendrix played the star spangled banner at woodstock on august 18th 1969 and john king from gang of four said when hendrix played that song it's very interesting that although all he was doing was playing the american national anthem on an electric guitar everyone knew it was about vietnam reactionaries wanted to take away his passport and revoke his american citizenship they knew it had a certain content beyond what it was on the surface i wouldn't put myself up with jimmy but that's kind of where you want your music to be where everyone knows what it's about andy gill and i wrote i love a man in a uniform as a pop song it was in the charts and it was banned in the uk because it came to be understood to be about the 1982 uk invasion of the falkland islands so yeah it's it's what so you're saying, you're saying that politics was always a part of it not just a reaction to to jimmy page but or phony beatlemania has bitten the dust but also a a, a political statement from the very beginning it arrived to me that way absolutely what attracted me were the clash and the dead kennedys and the subhumans and i loved also just the energy and intensity and authenticity of it bands like the pretenders who were less political although chrissy hines lyrics are actually really beautifully spiritual about um, people being kind to each other there's a whole chapter in my book about the revolution is personal so the way we interact personally with each other is potentially revolutionary i have to say quite a few punk rock people told me politics was not in it for them at all and maybe most punk rock has not been political and some of it has used the sounds ideas fashion imagery of punk rock to push scary ideas uh fascist ideas white supremacist ideas i have an interview and, and you know famously the dead kennedys <coughs> excuse me famously the dead kennedys uh, wrote a whole song about nazi punks um and i i actually growing up in southern california this was quite a puzzle that presented itself to me when in 1979 i was fully attracted to the politics of this hearing the clash sing about u.s wars and cia overthrowing of governments and resisting the draft and songs about the u.s war in vietnam and 
I was going to shows and seeing kids getting gang fights wearing swastikas. So it was really complicated. Uh, people were using all these, uh, the punk realm to express all kinds of ideas. And I have an interview in the book with a guy named Christian Picciolini, who was in a uh, racist white nationalist punk band. And he left it sort of in the complicated way one would leave a cult. And he has written a whole book about that and does seminars about that. Um, and, you know, a few people said, hey, punk isn't a political movement. Yeah, actually, even Jello Biafra said that to me. Punk rock is a type of music. Uh, and that's from one of the, the more politically minded punk rock. Well, he ran for he ran for mayor, right? Yeah, he did. He did. And I, you know, I explored that whole realm of the different strategies that we all choose from in how we want to change the world and address things like police violence or war or patriarchy. And some punk rock folks have tried to get elected to office, just like other people in our community. Jello, I think, figured he probably wouldn't win, but he came pretty close. I, I forget. I do have in my book. Um, he came in like sixth or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sixth. Something like sixth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a few other people, Jack Grisham from TSOL, yeah. uh, Southern California punk band. He ran for governor knowing he wouldn't win. He told me something like, hey, you can find photos of me wearing a dress on the internet and jumping around acting crazy. And uh, I'm not gonna win this, but he wanted to get the word out about certain topics and used his campaign to do that, um, to comment on political ideas. Apparently you can also find pictures like that of, uh, of a Supreme Court justice. But uh, John, your, your book, and it's a really uh, excellent book and it's filled with so many interesting interviews. Uh, punk revolution an oral history of punk rock politics and activism uh and you're going the, the book is just coming out and you're you're sort of celebrating it with some uh personal appearances and there's one coming up here in santa cruz on pacific avenue at the sub rosa community space when is that is that this coming tuesday yes it's tuesday june 27th at six in the evening and it's a sweet little space and we'll be having the event in the courtyard outside and afterward a local band power strip will be performing and i just had my first event to release the book at the bad animal bookstore downtown and it was really just delightful for me i'm just thrilled that the book is done and it's here and a lot of people came, my family and friends and some folks I didn't know who heard about the book. And I'm just thrilled. So, yeah, Sub Rosa on Tuesday, I will be talking about the book and the book will be there. And you'll be signing copies for people. Yes. Yes. I'm also I, I can't believe this because when I was 17 years old, I started listening to Gang of Four and all these bands and really... The Clash and Gang of Four became my 
favorite bands and have been for these all these years. And the singer from Gang of Four, John King, will be doing a book release event with me in London, England, oh. on July 9th at the West Hempstead Arts Club. And this is truly remarkable to me. And I'm just so grateful he's willing to do this. Uh, he lives not too far from London and it worked out. And we've had a good amount of communications in the last years. And I'm just thrilled that I'll do that. And then I'm doing one more event in Berlin where I lived in 1987. And there's a church there that was in East Berlin at that time. And it's a church that has a long history of anti-fascist activism and organizing. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was connected to this church. And that's where I'm gonna do my event. And this church hosted clandestine illegal punk rock concerts in the 70s and 80s. So that's, uh, I have a chapter on East Berlin punk rock in my book. Well, how very exciting. Lots of exciting things. The book is called Punk Revolution, An Oral History of Punk Rock, Politics and Activism. And the author, my guest, John Malkin. Uh, congratulations, John. And, and thanks for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf. Thank you. I'm really grateful uh, spending time with you. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.